Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Amen. Well, if you're a guest, we are in the book of Mark. We've gotten to the 14th chapter, and we are actually looking at the last 24 hours of Jesus' life over chapter 14 and 15. And so it's called the Passion. And it began, this sort of 24-hour period began with celebration of Passover, where Jesus literally transforms the elements and talks about a new exodus and a new liberation and a new Moses, and he is it. And you didn't sacrifice a lamb to celebrate this. He is the lamb, and we saw that last week, where he says, this is my body and this is my blood, as the bread and wine now become a picture of a brand new commitment on the part of God to redeem the human race. After that dinner, they moved to the Mount of Olives, and it's at the Mount of Olives where Jesus predicts to Peter, despite his sort of arrogance and confidence, that he's going to predict or that he's going to deny him three times. After that, they move from the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. I've was fortunate a few years ago to actually be there, be on the Mount of Olives, and then make our way to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's, it's an incredible journey, and I can, I can picture it. Um, and so here they are in this garden in Gethsemane. It's really olive press. It's an oil press. That's what the Hebrew word is really about. It's just olives. And so here in this garden is sort of a pause because Jesus has illustrated his death in the Lord's Supper, and now there's this pause, and these events are going to happen. There won't be any sleep. It's 24 hours, and the only sleep these guys get at the time they're not supposed to be sleeping, which we're going to see. But it's not a time for sleep. It's a time for prayer. And so this pause in the garden before he's betrayed and it triggers everything, then it'll just be a, a, a nonstop move till he's dead. It just won't stop moving. Uh, and what we're going to see in the garden is, uh, is, the, is probably the most intimate look at, inside the heart of Jesus, penetrating look into the heart of Jesus. And what we're hoping to do is each paragraph that Mark presents, because proportionately he spends more time on this 24 hours than on the whole three years of Jesus' life. And what's going to happen in each paragraph is something new about the cross is going to appear. Something new that'll change your life and your heart if you let it. And here we're going to look into the heart of Jesus. We're also going to look into the heart of the disciples. And so this passage breaks down very nicely into two parts. The first one is the heart of Jesus. The second one is sort of a, a window into the of human weakness. And they're juxtaposed to each other and side by side. In fact, there's two statements both of them come out of Jesus' mouth in this sort of private moment that illustrate and speak to both of those issues. And you're going to see them here. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So here we look into Jesus' heart. Off of his lips comes a statement that gives us a window into his heart. But then you can see the next thing Jesus says. He says it to the disciples and gives us a window into their heart. Stay awake. 
pray that you will not fall into temptation. And here it is. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so these two are contrasted. And you see Jesus going back and forth on these things. Here's the text as a whole, sort of colored so that you can get a feel where the, the most of the colors down at the bottom because in this private moment in the garden, it gets more frantic toward the end. Lots of movement. Every time Jesus moves forward, it's to pray. Every time it's to move backward, it's to help the disciples. And you see there's prayer, stay awake, and sleeping, and they're all contrasted, and they all communicate something very profound, not only about the heart of Jesus, but our own weakness. And so, let's look at the heart of Christ. Verses 32 and 33. Then they went to a place called called Gethsemane. And let me tell you, it's about 1 o'clock in the morning. I mean, that dinner they just had, which would have started, usually starts about 6 p.m. So Thursday night, 6 p.m., they're having this dinner. It would usually go till midnight. Some say it could go a little past. That means it's going to be the wee hours of the morning, somewhere between 12.30 and 2.30 probably in the morning. And now they're coming to the to garden, coming down from the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes his disciples, and this is obviously going to be a time of prayer. He separates himself from them. He says, you guys sit here, and we're going to go pray. And he actually grabs Peter, James, and John, which is what he always seemed to do in these uh, moments. And it says he became very troubled and distressed. And this, literally, he began to feel troubled and distressed. And here's where the moment really uh, comes to life. Because Mark, Mark is so in tune to emotions, far more than any of the other gospel writers. So he says things about how people are thinking and feeling more than anyone else. And so in a really special way, each gospel writer gives you another feeling about the garden. Luke's is very human. Uh, you see in Mark here, you, you get a little window into the emotion. He's troubled and he's distressed. Now these two words... One of them, only Mark has used, the word troubled. Only Mark has used it in the New Testament, so they're rare words. Uh, this is a rare moment, rare words. The other word is only used by two other writers in the New Testament, and only once. Uh, so we're seeing something unique. Here's how Mark has used them, because the word has a, a, a sort of a, a, a collage of meaning. You see lots of colors in it. It can mean utter fear and terror. I can't believe what I just saw. I'm, I'm an utter, uh, you know, horror. The other idea is uh, awe. It's amazing. But it usually comes from hearing something or seeing something you haven't seen in a long time. Imagine the horror of turning a corner and finding someone you love down, hurt, injured, severely, or, or maybe even dead. It's that, it brings out that kind of emotion, that kind of trouble and distress. And so you can see it's clearly an overwhelming moment, and Mark intends to make that point. And it becomes further clear as Mark uses the third word that describes this when he says this. Look what Jesus actually says. My soul is deeply grieved. And here's the word. Even to the point of death, and he tells them to remain here and stay alert. So what does it mean? He's grieved to the point of death. So here's what we're seeing. We're seeing inside of Jesus at the deepest level. That's what the statement is telling us. We're going to get a look inside of Jesus' soul. Remember, this whole series is called, Can You See Me Now? 
because the whole book of Mark is about seeing. Can you, can you get a glimpse of what, who Jesus is and what he's doing? And any nuance that you can get, and Mark gives us plenty so that we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us, because that's the only way your life's going to change, by the way. Your life won't change because you're going to gut it up tomorrow. Your life won't change because you figured out, you read a book. Your life is only going to change as you understand who Jesus is, see it, and fall in love with him. That's how your life changes. That's the gospel. And so we're going to see another look into this, and we're going to see deep inside his soul a look we have not gotten even to the point of death. So we see him at his deepest level internally, but we always see, also see the deepest level of despair. So we're going to go as far into Jesus' heart as we have been, and there we're going to find the deepest kind of despair. We're talking about the despair of death. Not bad day, death. Both of them together. So now the disciples of Peter, James, and John have been very privy, have been privy to Jesus' Highest moment and his lowest moment. Remember, Peter, James, and John were in the transfiguration. They saw the glory of God. They saw Jesus pull away his flesh, and they saw the glory of God, something no one has ever seen. And now they're in the garden with him, and they're looking deep in his soul, and they're seeing the real humanity of Jesus, the depth of his pain and his grief. And so it's a phenomenal thing. And they, by the way, both those things are topics in Mark that help you understand a really important message about discipleship. You want your life to mean something? You're going to have to pay a price. You're going to have to sacrifice. You want to follow me? You're going to have to sacrifice. But he who humbles himself, I will exalt. If you reach for the glory first without the suffering, then you misunderstand discipleship. So it's a graphic picture. But what's it showing us? Well, here's what's happening in the garden in this, this verse. What's happening in the garden is Jesus, very human level, is experiencing internally the death before the actual death. He's experiencing the death before the actual death. This is an important thing to note before you jump to the cross and see the agony there. You're going to see an internal kind of agony. Um, And this is important to grasp. Jesus isn't saying, uh, I feel uh, uh, this is a grief that's about to kill me. Jesus is saying, this is a grief caused by a death I'm experiencing inside. Do you ever say to a person, or, or about someone, he's dying inside right now? or she's dying inside right now. That's what this is. What you're seeing is Jesus is internally experiencing his death before he externally experiences it. And we're going to see why that's important. Why that gives us a glimpse into who Jesus is. Now, um, the question is, and it's got a surface for you, especially if you've been here for the study of Mark and you've heard Jesus talk about his death so much. Why is he so sort of seemingly panicked over the idea of his death in this moment. What's that about? See, because up to now, Jesus has been very 
controlled, very calm. He's spoken about his death, actually, in the third person. The Son of Man will experience. Son of Man will be betrayed. Son of Man will be crucified. Son of Man will be arrested, crucified, and then he will rise. It's always been in the third person. All of a sudden, it's come home in the garden, and he's experiencing it personally. But, I mean, up to now, it's been, nothing's going to stop me from getting to Jerusalem where I die. He's already illustrated his death in the cup and the blood. But now it seems as if Jesus has rounded a corner and seen something he hasn't seen up to now. So Jesus is about to see something he hasn't seen, and we're about to see something in Jesus we haven't seen. So verse 35 sort of brings this to life where he says this. He left the three disciples, goes a little further in, and he literally drops to the ground. That's the idea. He collapses. He's collapsing, and he's praying somehow that this hour, remember, hour, the word hour and the word cup in this context tell you that this is a moment that has been pre-planned in eternity past. That's what hour means. This is a moment that we have been waiting for all this time. It's not a brand new moment in that sense. It's been predetermined. And it seems as if he wants to bail. So it just feels like he's collapsing under the idea of his death, which is a brand new experience. And so what is happening here? Because it's almost like he wants to get out of this. I mean, if there's any way you can get me out of here, I'd like that. Now, by the way, whenever you study this topic, if you go study it on your own, you will encounter historians, you will encounter over the years, long periods of time, people who have uh, turned away from the faith, have struggled with who Jesus is, said that this proves that he really wasn't who he said he was, uh, because all of a sudden, now facing the real reality of his death, he can't handle it. And so this has been a problem for historians, uh, spiritual seekers, all kinds of people for a long time. Uh, so, uh, and even if you read history, you think of other martyrs. We can think of profound things other martyrs say at their death. Jesus seems to be panicking. Other martyrs taking their death pretty well. Think about the first martyr, the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Remember what happened to him? Here he is being stoned outside a city. In the paragraph that you read, when you hear how Stephen accepted this, the very first one, this is in Acts 7. Listen to this paragraph. Just hear it and see if you see a difference. After Peter preaches this very, very long sermon, and he really indicts the Jews, when they heard these things, they became furious and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently toward heaven and he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What utter calm, what utter confidence, so peaceful. But the killers, they covered their ears. They didn't want to hear it. They shouted with a loud voice over that and rushed at him with one intent, and they drove him outside the city, and they threw stones at him. And they continued to stone Stephen. And while, he, while they did, he prayed. Listen to this again. Jesus received my spirit. He fell to his knees and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold 
this sin against them. See, a lot of frantic activity on the part of the killers, but on the one being martyred, confidence, assurance, and peace. And Jesus is troubled and distressed and grieved. Why? What is it? Well, I'd like to suggest that Jesus is about to face something that no other person has ever faced. He's about to experience something in death no other human being has ever experienced in death. So it's very unique. No martyr can claim to know this feeling. It's far worse than physical death. As the agony of the garden pales in significance, or actually it's so much greater than the agony that Jesus experiences on the cross internally. And here is how that sort of develops out. He said, Abba, Father. So here you've got side by side something Jesus never did. You've got the recording of an Aramaic word and a Greek word. This is Abba means, Abba's a very intimate term. We, a lot of times you'll hear people say it almost has the idea of daddy. And that's a little childish from my take. But if you say dad, that's different than father, isn't it? If your kid comes, if your 20-year-old comes up to you and says dad instead of father, dad is so much more intimate and personal. And that's the idea, dad. So what he's saying first is, I know how close we are. Father says, I know how much you care about me. I know how much you care about me, but we're close. There's a closeness and a caring here that cannot be explained. And that prayer lets us in on this internal struggle. All things are possible for you. So you can see, Jesus isn't panicking here. He's troubled and distressed, but he's very crystal clear about his relationship with his dad. And he's very clear about what his dad's capable of. You do anything. But then he asks this, take this cup away from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so, in here, we begin to see, right here in this verse, what it is Jesus is experiencing internally and what kind of death it is. The cup that he's about to drink, which has sort of been impersonal. It's been a cup out there. It's been a cup out there. All of a sudden, that cup is in his hands. All of a sudden, that cup is right up front. He can smell what's in it. He can see what's in it. He can taste. His lips are, are on that cup. And that cup, this is very important if you're going to get, understand the passion, is the wrath of God. The Old Testament helps us understand that that cup is the wrath of God. And Jesus knows he is about to experience something from God that he has never in all of eternity ever experienced before. Ever. See, Jesus knows what it's like to be in harmony with God and the life that it brings and the love that flows for all the infinite love, infinite life, connected to it fully, eternal reality, in it, drinking it in, and now he is about to set that cup aside and drink something from God he's never had. His wrath. And that 
is what's killing him on the inside. William Lane says, the dreadful sorrow and anxiety then, out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs, is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father at the prospect of the alienation from God, which is entailed in the judgment upon sin which Jesus assumes. See, Luke actually writes this, which you have heard before, too. You say, how bad is this moment? Here's what Luke adds to this moment. Mark leaves out. And in his anguish, the word is literally agony, used in a very unique way in Luke just to express the horror of this moment for Jesus. But notice what Jesus says. He prays so earnestly. But listen, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Hey, this is an important word because he wasn't actually bleeding. He didn't sweat blood. He sweat as though it was blood. What does that mean? Well, listen, if you've got blood coming out of all the pores of your body, you're dying inside, and it is expressing itself and coming out. That's what it's saying. What, what, what Luke is trying to say is the sweat that you're seeing on the outside is really a death on the inside, and it's being expressed even in that sweat. He is experiencing that death. So in other words, he truly is dying internally. Now listen to this. Edwards writes this. It's one thing, fearful as it will be, to answer for our own sins before a holy and almighty God. But who? Who can imagine what it would be like to stand before God to answer for every sin, every crime, every act of malice and injury and cowardice and evil in the whole world? Who could imagine staring into that cup? That's what Jesus is doing. And so he writes, Jesus necessarily experiences an abandonment and darkness of cosmic proportions. The worst prospect of becoming the sin bearer for humanity is that it spells complete alienation from God, an alienation that will shortly echo above the desolate landscape of the mountain of Calvary when he screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the horror Jesus is experiencing on the inside. There is a death that Jesus experiences before his death, and it's worse. Imagine that kind of eternal relationship with your father, and it's going to be broken. Now, Jonathan Edwards, in one of his sermons, if you study the Garden of Gethsemane, if you were to Google it, Jonathan Edwards' sermon would come up. It's called Christ's Agony. And he asks a profound question. By the way, it's a great read, but it's a hard read, so just put your glasses on, get a cup of coffee. If you're going to do it, uh, he asked this question. I think it's great. Why would God show Jesus this horror before the cross? In other words, wouldn't it be safer if you had him nailed down first before you showed him this? Like, hey, drink this and then tell him what it was. This is poison. You see what I mean? It seems like Jonathan Edwards asks a great question. Because you're like, why put him through this in the garden? Look what he's going to experience on the cross. 
wait till he gets there to tell him how bad it's going to be. The horror of being separated from his father. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says. Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath, and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfold, as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore, that he might not do so, God first brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace, that he might look in and stand and view its fierce raging flames, and might see where he was going, and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners as knowing exactly what it is going to cost. This view Christ had in his agony in the garden. Then God brought the cup that he was to drink and set it down before him that he might have full view of it and see what it was before him before he drank it. And here's why. If Christ had not fully known, hey, let's keep this from him and get him to the cross. What if he went to the cross and he didn't know what it was going to cost him personally? Here's what Edward says. If Christ had not fully known what the dreadfulness of these sufferings was before he took them upon him, his taking them upon him could not have been fully his own act as a man. There could have been no explicit act of his will about that which he was ignorant of if he didn't know it. Would he be doing it for us if he didn't know what it was really going to cost? Is Edward's point. But when he had seen what they were by having an extraordinary view given to him and undertaken to endure them afterwards... He acted as knowing what he did, then taking that cup and bearing such dreadful sufferings was properly his own act by an explicit choice. And how much more does this mean? How much more does this mean? Not what I will, but what you will mean. He wouldn't have understood that. He wouldn't have been able to say it if he didn't know what it was going to cost in all of its senses. And Edward says, taking that cup, bearing such dreadful sufferings was properly his own act by an explicit choice, and so his love to sinners in that choice of his was all the more wonderful. You see, when you look in the heart of God, you know what you see? You know what you see? As you see Jesus drinking the cup of wrath from God, and you look into Jesus' heart, and what the other thing that you see is a profound love. And here they are sitting side by side, the wrath of God and the love of God. And here in the garden, we get them both. And by the way, you cannot understand God. You cannot understand redemption. You cannot understand it unless you understand his wrath and his love. That is what Jesus is telling us. Not my will, but thine be done. And so we're going to look at that in just a second. But think about this for a minute. Because Jesus actually says, I'm going to do your will. But he also raised the possibility. He raised the possibility. How is it important that wrath, you say, wrath and love together? What's that about? Well, think about this for just a second. The fact that Jesus says, all things are possible for you, suggests that Jesus is thinking, maybe there's another way to accomplish what we're going to do without going to a cross and without causing 
this internal uh, sort of separation between you and me. Maybe there's another way. And since you can do anything, God, is there another way? And haven't you ever talked to someone who said, yeah, why did, we, why did he come up with that plan? Couldn't he have done it some other way? I mean, he's God. Jesus is admitting all things are possible for him. Couldn't he have done that? See, when we think about God and we think all things are possible, we think he can do anything he wants. But the problem is he's limited. God is actually limited by his own phenomenal nature. And you can't understand why there was no other plan if you don't see wrath and love together. Because what does it say about our God? Well, what you're going to see here is Jesus saying, if there was ever a reason for me not to go to the cross to redeem people some other way, it would be, it would be, because of what about, I'm about, it would be the Father looking at me saying, yeah, I can't have us apart. That would have been the reason. But even that reason was not enough to keep Jesus from going to the cross or for God to want it done. That's a profound thing, and you're looking into the love of God in a way maybe you, you haven't seen it. Not even that cost was too high. So why is wrath and love together? Because the character of God meet in the cross in a way that no other place could possibly do. You say, why didn't we redeem people some other way? Because there was no way to show my wrath and my love all at the same time and in the same place like the cross. Now listen, we've talked about this before. Centered in God's character. Remember, His holiness demands the price. What dictates the price of sin? The sin itself. The holiness of God. It's the holiness of God that dictates the price. By the way, it is his love, it's his love that demands that he pay it and pay it gladly. And you see in both of those, side by side at the cross. And they're both critical to who God is. Um, now listen, there is nothing worse and I guarantee you have felt this feeling. There is nothing worse than a crime being committed and justice falls way short of that crime. I was told, telling the first service that my wife loves these little CSI shows and all these you know, scenes about somebody getting murdered and stuff like that. She just, it's really, it's, it's nerve-wracking to be honest with you because she constantly boasts of her ability to kill and not be found out because she's become an expert in, uh, in sort of forensics. And uh, it's funny, but every blue moon, you know, she'll say she can kill me. You know, we were watching one last night. And very often, yeah, very often, um, very often she can, having watched so many, sort of pick who did it way ahead of time. Um, and so, you know, she said, I know, I can, I can get away with it. I know how this looks. Anyway, we're watching one last night, and this fella is in, you know, I don't usually watch them, but sometimes I'm kind of stuck watching them. And I was watching one last night, and there was a guy in there, 
who committed a few crimes, a number of crimes, horrific crimes, but because of a few legal issues and stuff like that, got three years. And it was what he had done to some ladies was, it was inhuman. And he only got three years, and you couldn't help but feel it rise inside of you. There's no way. I mean, you're like, if, that's, if you're the dad, yeah, as soon as you get out in three years, <laughs> got a, I got a little something for you. <laughs> got a little something. I'm going to give you what you didn't get. You know? Because there's nothing worse. So here is God saying, now this is the thing that you've got to understand about your own sin. If you're going to fall in love with God and the cross, you've got to know that your sin demanded a price that high. If that is how, how high the justice is, how deep was your sin? I assure you it's far greater than you think your own sin is. And you can't understand the cross. You can't love what Jesus did for you. If you don't know what he was doing there, what he sacrificed there, what, what the sin was and what the holiness demanded, you just, you just can't. But you see love at the same time. Now, so let me just ask you now for this last few minutes of this talk to grapple with the idea of God's wrath and God's love, side by side, so that we get, because in this text, in the garden, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a cup of wrath, and we're seeing Jesus' heart of love. So let's talk about that. In case you struggle with the idea of a God being angry, of an angry God, you prefer a loving God, which the world does, and it constantly claims God's going to love them no matter what they do. Well, the reality is, you cannot have a truly loving God if you don't have a God of wrath. You cannot have a truly loving God if you don't have a God of wrath. And I'm going to suggest to you that His wrath is actually an expression of His love. So stay with me for a second. Without wrath... His love would be reduced to some mushy sentiment. Just, oh, come here, a grandma kind of love. You can't do anything to make me upset kind of love. Okay? And what would that say? Okay? Because here's the deal. You can't truly love a person without being angry at the sin that they do or the sin that's done to them. You try it. If you can, then, it's, in, then it's, a, it's an indifferent love. It's a love that doesn't care. How can you have that? It's impossible. Love, really, the opposite of love is indifference. And that's impossible. You can't really love and not experience anger. Imagine God, who loves the highest and the most not experiencing wrath. It would say that his love isn't really love because it, it doesn't see what I'm doing or what's done to me. 
Now, it's very important that you understand God's wrath is not like human wrath. Because when we think of anger, we think love and anger can't be together. I've seen my dad angry. I've seen other people angry. I've been angry. Love seems to disappear. Can, a, can God be both at the same time? That's a really important theological question. See, we want to differentiate them so badly that we almost have to make God a schizophrenic, weird being, almost too human. Because he's capable of both. Whereas humans, we fly off the handle. God's wrath is never vindictive. It's always willful. It's always about the same thing. It's always reasonable and just. When you offend his holiness, you experience it. That's his wrath. Now, think about this. Tim Keller makes a great note about Jesus' wrath, and I want you to hear this. He says, if you don't believe in a God of wrath, then you have no idea of your value. If you don't know how angry Jesus or God was when Jesus died on a cross, then you can't possibly know how much he loved you at the same time if you don't know how angry he was. And therefore, you can't know how valuable you are to him. That the price would be that high, that the anger would be that high, and yet the love would be that high all at the same time. Your sin is far worse than you ever imagined it, and you're far more loved than you ever imagined. Do you see both side by side? That's the cross. And so he says, you'd never understand your value if you took wrath away from God. And he said, here's what I mean. Imagine a God on one side, a wrath where he didn't need to go to a cross. Let's say Jesus didn't need to go to the cross in order to save you. He says, so you're picturing two different kind of gods. You're picturing the one that did go to the cross, okay, who paid something very high price for you. And then picture someone on the other side who paid nothing for you. You cost him nothing. Would the love be different? He says, so what happens if you take the wrath of God, then you take God's pure love and passion for you away too. You can't have both. And he goes on to describe that here in just a minute. So you really don't know how much he loves you because he's never expressed it. The God on this side. The God who paid nothing for you. You never have to doubt how much God loves you after the cross. Never, ever have to, have to doubt his, his love and his value of you. And that's why he brings up, uh, C.S. Lewis has a little book called uh, Letters to Malcolm, and Malcolm was a guy he was inter, you know, um, interacting with, corresponding with about some issues about God, and Malcolm had a problem with God's wrath and anger. And so he said, so he depersonalized it. He said, you know how I like to think about God? He tells C.S. Lewis, this is how I like to think about God. I like to think about God's anger sort of like a live wire, like a live electrical wire. There it is. It's powerful. It can hurt you, but you don't experience it unless you rub up against it the wrong way, unless you touch it the wrong way. Then you're going to experience the wrath of God. Just depersonalized it. It's anger sort of in theory, not necessarily 
active. And here's how C.S. Lewis responds to him. C.S. Lewis says, my dear Malcolm, and I love this, you've got to love this line, I hope, I hope it hits your heart the way it hits mine. He says, my dear Malcolm, what do you suppose you have gained? And this is <laughs> such a great question. What do you think you've gained by substituting the image of a live wire for angered majesty? You have shut us up all in despair. Here's why. For the angry can forgive. Electricity can't. Do you not love C.S. Lewis? Golly, do you just need a dose of him about every, about every day. I'd say every day, every morning, you need a dose of C.S. Lewis. How profound. You want to take that wrath away? If you take the wrath away and you depersonalize God and you make him something he isn't, then you never know how much he loved you and how much he forgave you. And that's why the cross needed both. That's why the price couldn't be lowered when Jesus says, is it possible? No, the price can't be lowered because my holiness can't be lowered. But I must pay the price because my love can't be lowered either. So think about something, and I'll close you. I'll, I'll, I'll let you let this. There's a phrase we all use every now and then. God hates the sin, and what? He loves the sinner. Now, there's a problem with that. And D.A. Carson's probably right. It should probably be wholly abandoned by Christians. Shouldn't say it. Because it does two things. It sort of shortchanges God and what he is mad at. And sort of lets sinners not really understand how much he loves them. And here's what I'm saying. The Psalms and Romans and all of the scriptures tell you that God's wrath falls on sin and sinners. Not just sin. All right, and William Temple says it's a shallow psychology to separate the sin from the sinner. You can't do that. Sinners will be judged. Not just sin. We know that, yet we make that statement. And somehow we don't realize we're reducing God's wrath and his love, and if you do that, then you miss it. You miss redemption. You miss the picture. John 3.36 says this. Hear this. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Hey, it's one thing to think in the abstract, in the conceptual, that God's love and wrath went together at the cross. It's another thing to realize that wrath would have been directed at you if Jesus didn't gladly take it. That's what he was seeing in the cup. Real wrath meant for real people. Not abstract. Hey, he drank the wrath you deserve. I deserve. That's another story. Don't take away his wrath. 
or you take away his love. You say, how does God love sinners then? What, what does it mean? He's, so you're saying he has wrath toward sinners? Yes. I'm also saying that he has love toward them at the same time because he has done something about it. The cross reveals his anger and his love for sinners all at the same time. But don't take away his anger or you reduce his love to something weird and mushy and in the end, you wouldn't like it and you'll never be able to know how much he loves you. And so D.A. Carson says this, our problem, and this is a great line, our problem in part is that in human experience, wrath and love don't normally abide in, or uh, they normally abide in mutually exclusive compartments. I brought this up earlier. Can God really love sinners and be angry at them at the same time? Because you and I find that difficult at times. But listen to what he says. Because for us, love drives out wrath. Wrath drives out love. But notice what he says. But this is not the way it is with God. God's wrath is not an implacable, blind rage. However emotional it may be, it is entirely reasonable and willed response to offenses against his holiness. At the same time, his love wells up amidst his perfections and is not generated by the loveliness of the loved. (laughs) This is such a great... When God looks at you, he doesn't say, you're so lovable, I've got to love you. God's love wells up from inside of him. It's part of who he is. It comes out because he can't help it. It's in there. The cross was in there. That's the extent of his love. You could never see it if there was no anger. God and his perfections must be wrathful against his rebel image bearers, for they have offended him. But God also in his perfections must be loving toward his rebel image bearers, for that is his character too. You see how the cross, God is kind of on the hook by virtue of who he is. When Jesus says, is there another way around this? It's impossible. I'd have to change who I am in order for, the, for human beings. And, and that can't happen. What do we know about God? At his core character, he is unchanging. The cross is literally the expression of who God is. That's why it's so critical to your thinking and to your life as a believer. Because nothing today I could ever say could make you turn around and love someone unlovable. Nothing could make you forgive someone who's hurt you. Nothing could make you live the way you ought to today and tomorrow than to understand how much He loves you. Do you see that? That's why the last 24 hours of Jesus' life is so critical to the Christian life. I already know about His death. I already know what He did on the cross. Uh Uh-uh. Look at it fresh. And you won't need to read a book tomorrow to make sure you're generous. You won't need to read a book tomorrow to make sure you're disciplined. You won't need it to be obedient tomorrow. You just say, he loved me so much, I cannot help but love him back. That's the gospel, Hillside. That's the gospel. And that's how it transforms people. The more I see how much he loves me, the more I love 
him. That's the gospel. Amen? If you're here today, you're either under God's wrath or you're under his love. But it's not just either or, because here's the truth. If you've never given your life to Christ, you are under his wrath. But his heart is so loving, he's drawing you in. And maybe today, for the first time in your life, you say, I understand what my sin really is and I understand what the cross has done for me. And I'm going to accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. That's what it means. And if you're going to do that today, I pray to God, if you've never done it, that you will do that today, just in understanding what he's done. And for the rest of us, may you be motivated by his love all week to be who he's called you to be. Next week, we're going to look at how that changes the way you pray. Because Jesus prays a prayer here. How does that change how you and I live every day? That's next week. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all you've done. Thank you for week, for this glimpse into this moment. What a, what a wonder and a privilege it is that Peter, James, and John were able to witness enough of this to record it and make it be known to us because it's just so transforming of our lives. I pray today someone in this room would see its truth and take hold of it in the deepest part of their heart, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.